0: You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 21. Luke 22, verse 21. And while you're turning there, let me just ask by show of hands, who in here is at least 81 and a half years old or older? Do we have, we've got a few in here. All right, then that means that you were alive on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, when just a little before 8 a.m., which would have been 1 p.m. our time, in Honolulu, Hawaii, the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, which instigated the, America's formal entry into World War II. And most of us know about that attack and some of the aftermath of it, but there's a story that you may not have heard. 10 days after the Pearl Harbor attack, Uh, There was uh, the townsfolk of North Platte, Nebraska, which is a place that looks like it's in the geographic center uh, of America. Uh, They heard that the soldiers were coming through from the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, were coming through on a troop train uh, to California. So around 500 North Platte residents showed up at the depot with food, gifts, and letters, and lots of loving support for their Nebraska boys. Only the problem was this, when the train showed up, it wasn't the Nebraska boys, it was Kansas boys, Kansas soldiers that were there, and so they didn't know what to do. But they made the spontaneous decision to give those Kansas soldiers all their supplies. Reports say it was a spontaneous act of genuine devotion that touched both the soldiers and the people who came to the depot that day. But it didn't end there. A few days later, a 26-year-old named Ray Wilson wrote the local newspaper telling them about North Platte's generosity. And she volunteered to organize a canteen uh, to do something similar for every single troop train that came through Nebraska. All right. Well, for the next four and a half years, the people of North Platte and surrounding communities met every troop train that came through their town every day. They prepared sandwiches and and cookies and cold drinks and hot coffee. They had baskets of magazines and and books to give away to the soldiers and snacks for the train. And they were uh, they even made birthday cakes for anyone having a special day. Right. Sometimes serving as many as eight thousand soldiers and sailors a day. Statistics say that by the time the last train rolled through on April 1st, 1946, six million soldiers had been blessed by the North Platte canteen. 45,000 volunteers had served faithfully until the war was over and most of the troops had been transported home. And if the residents of North Platte were that dedicated in winning World War II and serving those soldiers, how much more should Christians be committed to serve the Lord above and beyond our, our talents and means in and through our local church? Amen. And service is really what our message is about today. And so I want us to stand and read God's word together. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Luke 22, verse 21. And this is, a, a, this is a, an indirect, beautiful example of service Luke twenty two twenty one. but behold, the hand of him, Jesus said, who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute uh, also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who's greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to ask Luke Kendall to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Luke. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us just a gorgeous day today that we can enjoy. Um, God, thank you for bringing everybody here. I ask that, um, that you would just help our church family grow in faith and love and purpose and uh, that we would serve one another as you uh, came and served us. And uh, I ask that you be with Went as he uh, preaches this morning and that you give us ears to hear. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. all right by show of hands i want to ask who in here has ever had a family feud i mean beyond your just your immediate family all right by show of hands okay so how many in here have ever lied by show of hands everybody that didn't just put your hand up i mean come on y'all no our family's perfect You you little smiles don't fool me or jesus all right and you know what happens with family feuds you know you think they're all settled until next year's Christmas party, and Aunt so-and-so brings it up again, and it all, you know, goes downhill from there. Well, it may surprise you to know that the family feud we just read about, that we just witnessed, was actually instigated by Jesus. Uh, it's what we're going to call this morning a prophetic commotion. Luke 22, verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Verse 23, and they began to question one another. And verse 24, a dispute arose among them, right? So the dispute started by Jesus explaining the prophecy of Judas's betrayal. So first we see the facts of the prophecy, and I just want to include two facts here, all right? First, the encouragement of God's determination church there is no way around Luke 22:22 22, 22. for the son of man goes meaning he's headed to the cross to die how as it has been determined now we don't know how the betrayal was determined, the variables, the conversations in heaven. Remember from Job, there are conversations, spiritual conversations that the devil had with Christ, with with God in heaven. But what we do know is God planned it. So before we go crazy about wondering how God could plan for sin to happen, which we're going to discuss in just a minute, before we get angry at God, can we just stop for a second and praise God for the fact that He has a plan? right? Isn't there some comfort in knowing God wasn't spitballing and making all this up as he went along, right? Isn't there some peace to be found in the plans of God? Have our lives and our faith and and God's love for us faithfully not afforded us some measure of calm in the midst of all life's confusion? I, I certainly hope so. Do you know the Greek word For determined here is the word horizo, where we get our word horizon, right? So it literally means to determine horizons and boundaries, to designate limits. It refers to the Lord literally horizoning all the physical scenes of life before creation, This guarantees God works each in conjunction with His eternal purpose. Church, even in Jesus' own betrayal, God is horizoning. Even in our betrayals of life, God is horizoning for us. He has looked ahead and He knows what's best. And I know this is a bit deep, all right? I mean, there's a paradoxical sense... There's a paradoxical nature to certain truths of God. You can use the egg illustration to explain the Trinity or the water, you know, the ice, gas. None of them fully explain these paradoxes, all right? Like the sovereignty of God and the and the, man's responsibility. But I think Hebrew 4 sheds a little light on this paradox. Therefore, it, it says in verse 1, Hebrews 4, While the promise of entering His rest still stands... Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Rest. Although his, listen to this, his works were finished... From the foundation of the world, verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So his works were finished. God has perfect knowledge knowing everything that's going to happen, but it also remains for some to enter God's rest, his salvation. And the fact that we remain, right, in spite of millennia of our sins speaks of the perfect patience and preparation of our God. And that is encouraging to my soul. And because we're created in the image of God and bear His likeness, he, he challenges us to see our horizon through that same strong determination. He says, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's no temptation that's taken me, but such as is common to man. So He encourages us. So we trust the promises of God. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Our Heavenly Father holds our horizons. And that is a wonderfully encouraging thing to my spirit. And I pray it is to you too. That's fact one of the prophecy. But we see second, the encouragement of man's responsibility. Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Judas betrayed Jesus, and though Jesus knew it was going to happen, it didn't relieve Judas of the guilt in doing it. Now, there's a paradox that is always going to exist between God's sovereign determination and man's free will. It's been described as, as two different railroad tracks. A train needs to run on two tracks, and one of those tracks is the sovereign determination of God, and one of those tracks is the free will of man right and we won't understand where they cross until we get to eternity right that's part of a paradox but no matter what illustration i use no illustration removes mankind's inability to fully comprehend that paradox so we look to scripture genesis 1:27 one commentary put it this way god created men and angels with a free will and if a being has a free will there is at least the potential that he will choose badly The potential for sin was a risk God took. He created human beings in His image. And since He is free, humans were created free. Free will involves the ability to choose. And after God communicated the moral standard, He gave the man a true choice. Of course, we know what He did. Genesis 2, 16, And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You can have all this. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. And what did Adam choose? He chose disobedience. Listen, in all my talk about God's determination, you need to hear this. God did not tempt, coerce, or lure Adam into disobedience. God did not do that, and I'll tell you why. James 1.13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Don't even say it. Don't even utter those words. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God allowed Adam the dignity of free choice and honored that choice with appropriate consequences. (laughs) Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because... Adam sinned? No, because all sinned, right? God provided the opportunity to sin, but He did not create or instigate sin. Having the opportunity was good. Uh, the, The Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, Right? The opportunity was good. Without it, human beings would be little more than robots. Right? I don't want to force my son to tell me he loves me. I want to hear him say with his own heart, I love you. Church, this was the same for Adam. It's the same for Judas when he betrayed Jesus. And it's the same for us. J.C. Ryle was an evangelical bishop in the 1800s and commenting on Judas. He said, Though the wickedness of Judas was foreknown and foreseen and permitted by God in His infinite wisdom, yet Judas was not the less guilty in God's sight. God's foreknowledge does not destroy man's responsibility or justify man in going on still in wickedness under the excuse that he cannot help sinning. Nothing can happen in heaven or on earth without God's knowledge and permission. But sinners are always addressed by God as responsible. Now, how in the world, preacher, is that encouragement? (laughs) Well, because we are responsible participants in our own sanctification. You understand that? We are our own participants. We are participants with God in planting the spiritual gardens of heaven, all right? In building the kingdom of God into the hearts of our children, in our church, in our communities we have responsibility in God's work. Not only that, Jesus wasn't playing favorites with His disciples. Judas had the same access to truth that, that, and he had the same access to Christ's multitude of personal exam, obedient examples. He saw the same Ju- Jesus that all the other disciples saw. Add to this the fact that Jesus Himself had a free will, right? He chose to obey the Father as the father determined his death on the cross. And that was the cross of Calvary. That was the determination. The encouragement is not just in the fact that we're free will participants in God's eternal work, but that Jesus is the perfect example of that free will participation. He chose to die. Luke nine fifty one. before he even got there, says, when the, do- when the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was not going to be deterred. John 10, 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Don't be discouraged by God's determination and our responsibility. Be encouraged, right? The facts of the prophecy are paradoxically simple. God determined and Judas chose, all right? But the prophetic facts of Judas' betrayal led to a commotion, what we'll call the fallout of the prophecy. Luke 22:23, 23, and they began to question one another and uh, which one of them was, uh, was gonna do this. And then a dispute also arose among them as to which of them uh, was to be regarded as the greatest, right? And I just see this playing out. The disciples are sitting around talking about, well, which one's the worst disciple? I mean, surely the guy who's going to betray Jesus, he's he's the worst. He is the worst, right? So while we're on this topic of who's the worst, wonder who's the best. Wonder who's the greatest. One scholar put it this way. Peter could have said, you know, I was the first one Jesus called. (laughs) Matthew may have replied, yeah, but... You're just a fisherman. You really didn't have much to lose. You know, I was a tax collector. I was making bank, cheating them folks. I had to give all that up. Then James and John could have chimed in, yeah, but we were the only ones that God called the sons of thunder, right? They could have been jockeying for a seat next to Jesus at the table. I don't know how it all played out, but the prophecy of Judas' betrayal started the whole argument, right? First, we see that the argument was ongoing, Luke had already recorded a, a similar dispute in chapter 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And Jesus, of course, shut that down by calling a little child over to him. <laughs> and saying, said, you need to have the faith of this child. You want to see who's the greatest. Come here. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then over in Matthew 20, the mother of James and John, which was uh, probably Jesus' aunt, said to him in Matthew 2021. 21, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. Of course, Jesus kind of rebukes her, says so you don't even know what you're asking, lady. And then in Matthew twenty twenty four, when the ten, the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So self righteous, right? Why were they indignant? Because they're like, I hey, he can't have the I'm supposed to have the place, right? And then there's Matt, uh, Mark 9, 33. And they uh, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you guys talking about? What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What, what, what are you guys talking about? Uh, I mean, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> So Luke 22 is really just an ongoing family fallout, all right? It's nothing new. Second, we see that the argument was destructive. You may have heard the story of the two steamboats that were headed down the Mississippi River from Memphis to Louisiana. And one sailor on one boat yells over to the sailor on the other boat, hey, you know, you guys are pretty pokey. Your boat boat can't hang with us. Of course, challenges were made and a race ensued, all right? Well, one of the boats began to fall behind they were running out of coal they had enough coal to make it to louisiana on a normal pace but not on a racer's pace right and so they burn up all their coal and one of the young sailors had the wise idea to start throwing the cargo in the the steam hopper and so they just began to pitch the cargo and their supplies into the steam hopper and sure enough they gained and passed the other boat and won the race well the problem was all the cargo that they were paid to transport to louisiana was now consumed right Humility and friendship is like cargo that God has entrusted us with. That's why it says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So we don't win races by burning the cargo. By the way, we're the cargo. One of our greatest witnesses as a church is our unity and our love. We should share the gospel, yes, yes, But another proof of our discipleship is in the love we show toward one another. And I think that's one reason that uh, we have so many guests on Sundays. You know, about a a third of our people every Sunday are not members. And I think it's because there's a genuine, a genuineness to our faith at Piper and Baptist. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But when we don't show it, it's destructive. Disputes are like gossip. It's hard to serve and encourage others when you're arguing and running, running others into the dirt, right? The fallout of the prophecy was ongoing, it was destructive, and it was, quite frankly, inappropriate. Church, all this fight happens as the most impactful events in history were about to unfold, right? It's like two brothers arguing... Uh, over who loves their dad more while their dad is sitting there in bed dying, right? As Jesus gets closer to the cross, his disciples seem to get further from the spirit. <laughs> look at Luke twenty-two fourteen. 14. Look, look there in your Bibles. Luke twenty-two fourteen. 14. What's happening there? What does the heading in your Bible say? What does it say? Institution of what? The Lord's Supper. <laughs> How's that for bad timing? you're about to begin an eternal ordinance of the church that represents the Savior's sacrifice on the cross. And you're arguing that this sacrament is the thing that the church was supposed to take together. It demonstrates our connection in Christ to the Lord and to each other. The time they been arguing uh, who are, who's the greatest, they should have spent encouraging one another, and not betray Jesus <laughs> well if we can find encouragement in the facts of the prophecy then I think there's some encouragement to find in the fallout right and this is it I don't normally delight in the downfall of others but when it comes to those disciples I feel a little encouraged right now right? if the 12 spiritual studs cannot keep from having some prideful argument right during this (laughs) incredible representation of Christ destructive inappropriate ongoing and yet God still uses them if they can't help it and God still uses them to glorify him and to lay the foundation for the gospel for all the rest of the generations to come piperton church may just have some hope amen There is hope of forgiveness and usefulness in the kingdom of God, right? In this prophetic commotion, there were facts, there was a fallout, but then after the prophetic commotion came a a kingdom contrast. And there's, there's a difference between man's temporary earthly kingdoms and God's eternal heavenly kingdom, which is actually here on earth and in heaven. And so we see here in Christ's kingdom, a privilege relinquished, Right. Luke 22, 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Verse 26. Not so with you. There's your contrast. You're not like the kingdoms of this world. You already have the keys to the kingdom. I gave it to you. And you're fighting over who sits next to me at the table. Jesus had already told a crystal clear example about this earlier, uh, seven chapters, eight chapters earlier in Luke 14, verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the distinguishing is in the relinquishing of privilege. The second contrast is seen in a service that's pursued. He says in verse 26, Luke 22, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Church, let me just ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to serve the Lord? You waiting for some spiritual discipline? You waiting for some blessing? You waiting for some problem to catapult you into God's service? Why wait? We have the commands of scripture. We have the blessed hope of salvation and assurance in Jesus Christ. What are we waiting for? Isaiah 6 verse 8 we know this passage, many of you. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Do you know that D.L. Moody wrote next to this verse in his own Bible, he wrote these notes. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do by the grace of God, I will do. Well, the third contrast is greatness exemplified. Luke 22, verse 27. That's the way the kingdoms of this earth work. They they like to sit at the table. They like to lord their authority over you. Verse 27, but I am among you as the one who serves. Mike drop. <laughs> you know, all, all preachers tend to have some of their, some favorite themes that are kind of woven throughout all their sermons. And one of mine is just these these earthly examples of Jesus. Jesus didn't even teach from a pulpit so much like this. He was out in the world giving these day-to-day examples. And before there was ever the beautiful description of love I, I did I formed a wedding last night for Dean and Allie and, um, and we read from 1 Corinthians 13 the beautiful verses about love but before that description was ever given the beautiful example of love was displayed John 13 14 where after Jesus washed their feet he said if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example, I think that's pretty clear, that you also should do just as I have done to you. And he wasn't just meaning serve one another's feet. You know? I mean, wash one another's feet like that's the only act of service there is to one another. You know, That's one of them. That's one example. That's one humbling example. Matter of fact, I see in, in many weddings these days, in Christian weddings where a husband and wife will wash one another's feet. But he goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's your kingdom contrast, right? They lord authority over you, but the Lord of all washes your feet. <laughs> there's, your, there's your contrast. A, prov- a prophetic commotion, a kingdom contrast, and finally, an eternal commendation. I don't have a ton of time to spend here, but Luke 22, 28 says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this is quite uh, the commendation given the fact that of the 12 folks there in that room, right? One of them was gonna call down curses on himself in 24 hours or so call down curses on himself in denial that he ever even knew Jesus. Another one's going to like get paid off to betray him. And all the other 10, they're going to walk away from him as well. They're all going to walk away. And yet Jesus encourages them. (laughs) They were the ones who left uh, stable sources of income. They left extended family, even risked their lives. And Jesus is... Proving to them that their service to him did not go unnoticed. Even in the midst of their selfish argument about who's the greatest, even in the impending denials he knew in his foreknowledge were going to take place, Jesus commended them. It says he assigned to them, right? That word was like a last will and testament to give them an eternal kingdom. One scholar said the 12 tribes of Israel is an ancient way of talking about all the people of God who are now gathered in the church of Jesus Christ. And we may not fully understand the judging of these first disciples and apostles. What is that judging? But I think Ephesians 2.19 gives us a little peek in the window of what that means. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So I think that's part of it. That truthful foundation of these apostles is part of the judgment that you didn't listen to, right? So that could be one of the symbolic senses in which the foundation is the world's judgment. Now, while the judging part of that last verse is specifically to those 12 apostles, the joy of an eternal banquet is for all of us. Who call on the name of the Lord? Isaiah twenty-five verse six says, "On the mount, on the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine." Luke fourteen fifteen says, "Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God." In verse five of the famous Psalm twenty-three passage, he says, "You prepare a table." before me revelation 19 9 says blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb church there's not a soul in here that's not invited you're all invited to the marriage supper of the lamb but you got to repent and call on the name of the lord to be saved well i'm going to close with a poem Uh, and i didn't write this one but it's a beautiful poem that kind of represents i believe the heart of this passage and i want you to pay attention to it the master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be best. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Hear, here! cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table, for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my content so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride, and I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you use me for fruit, not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel. I've been hoping to find. I'll mend it and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big mouthed and shallow and loud, nor the one who displays his content so proud, not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay. He mended and cleansed it and filled it that day. He spoke to it kindly. There's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour in to you. I'm going to tell you, Piperton, there is one great person in this church, and it's not you, and it sure ain't me. It is the King, it is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is serving you even now to draw you to call on His name and repent of your sin. He loves you. He serves you every day. He intercedes for you daily. And we need to get into the kingdom of God and follow his lead. There's a great old book, Experiencing God. It was a a biblical discipleship material. Um, And uh, I think it was by Henry Blackaby, wasn't it? And the theme that ran throughout that was the question's not whether God's at work. The question is, are you going to jump in? Go jump in the river. It's a, it's a moving river. Just jump in and the current will carry you <laughs> to your service. All right? Jump in and serve the Lord. We need to get about serving him more today. Would you stand? Father God, we love you. And we, uh, it's hard for us to comprehend the examples that you give us. You clarified that in this world, the greatest person is the is the person who sits at the table. <laughs> but then you dropped the mic and you said, but I, I'm not that person. I'm the person who serves those sitting at the table. And God, I cannot comprehend how believers, <laughs> of which I am one, can sit at the table and Receive all the benefits of the table, the food, the wine, the bread. I get it all, and yet I don't want to serve you? It makes no sense, Lord. You are servant to us, and so God, in your example, help us to follow it. I pray today, not just that those who are, have not called on the name of the Lord, that they would call on your name and be saved today, repent of their sins, turn from their sins, and trust you only as their salvation pray for that God but I also pray for the many Christians that are in here that are just not serving you to their full capacity I don't want them to serve so that they'll please their preacher or uh, their their grandmother or their mother or parents I want them to serve because they understand the service that you are actively involved in them you're you serve the troop train every day And so, Father, I pray that we would serve you in return out of the glorious presence and gracious gift you've given to us. I ask that we would make those decisions today to either call on your name or to join this church and be involved in service to you through our local body of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.